The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4, The Medieval World, Episode 56, The Chola Dynasty. We return to India for the first time since discussing the Gupta Empire, but this time we are in the far south of the Indian subcontinent, an area rarely penetrated by the mighty Indian empires of the classical period. Although the Chola Empire existed as a powerful entity between the 9th and 13th centuries, the Chola ruling dynasty dates all the way back to the time of Ashoka the Great, of the Mauryan Empire of the 3rd century BCE, and it could very likely be even older. The area of India at the southern tip of the subcontinent is referred to as Tamilakam, and the Chola were just one of a number of kingdoms that existed in this area at the turn of the first millennium. These kingdoms were fed by a healthy trade network along the coastlines which aided the urbanisation of the area. Other significant Tamil kingdoms were the Pandya and the Chera. Tamil culture developed independently from the powerful kingdoms and empires that came and went in the north of the subcontinent. The Tamil language is a Dravidian language and some experts believe that Dravidian languages may have been displaced to some degree from the Indus Valley by ancient Indo-Iranian migrations, but this is debated. We do know that these languages flourished in the south of the subcontinent, however, and Tamil is still spoken in the south of India to this day. The origins of the Chola can be found in the writings of the Imperial Chola from the medieval period, who claim that the Chola people are descended from the sun. Many mythical stories of early Chola kings can be discovered in these writings. The Imperial Chola claimed descent from the early Chola king called Karikala, We're not completely sure if Karikala truly existed, but his story does exist in some Sangam literature. Sangam literature is thought to belong to the contemporary period of the early Chola, that is the turn of the first millennium, named after the Tamil Sangams, which were assemblies of Tamil scholars that were around in the south of the Indian subcontinent before the medieval period. King Karikala is credited with the construction of the Kalanai Dam built across the Kaveri River. The dam still exists but has since been remodelled. Thanks to the Kaveri River, the lands of the early Chola are described as fertile and there appears to have been a good trade relationship with the Roman Empire. During the age of the Mauryan Empire, Tamilakam 
was the only area of the Indian subcontinent that was not conquered. After the collapse of the Mauryan Empire, the middle of the subcontinent was dominated by the Satavahana dynasty, who once again were prevented from expanding into Tamilakam in the far south. The lands of the Satavahana disintegrated and were expanded into by the Vakataka dynasty over the course of the 3rd and 4th centuries at a time when the Gupta dynasty made a great imperial expansion from the lands of the Ganges river. As the Gupta conquered the east coast of the subcontinent as far down as the lands of the Pallava dynasty, approximately the area around the modern city of Chennai, the Kalabra dynasty became the controlling influence of a large area of Tamilakam, including that of the early Chola. Over the course of the next two centuries, both the Vakataka and the Gupta lost their southernmost territories and recessed northwards. The Kalabra were not able to maintain the unity of Tamilakam during this period as the traditional dynasties started to regain autonomy. In the far south, the Pandya controlled an area similar in location to the modern Indian state of Tamil Nadu, while the Pallava prospered further north along the east coast. Centred on the modern Indian state of Karnataka on the west coast, a new power emerged during the 6th century called the Chalukya. The rise of the Chalukya brought with it an imperial movement in an otherwise fragmented area of small kingdoms. Their period is described as a golden age for the region, with great advances in trade, commerce and administration. The Chalukya would dominate the area of the Deccan Plateau, which is in the centre of the Indian Peninsula. During the 8th century, the Rashtrakuta rose up against the Chalukya, taking control of most of the Deccan and squeezing the Chalukya eastwards. The Pallava and the Pandya in the south were generally able to maintain their independence while all of this was going on to their north. The Rashtrakuta would make considerable efforts to feudalise the Pallava from the late 8th century. During this period, the Chola people still existed on the borderlands of the Pallava and the Pandya, but it would be in the 9th century that the Chola started to make moves to assert their own authority on their locality. The Foundation of Imperial Chola Tensions were high between the Pallava to the north and the Pandya to the south. One of the Chola leaders was a man called Vijayalaya Chola and it appears that he belonged to the branch of the Chola people called the Telugu Chola who claimed their descent from the ancient king Karikala. It is suggested by historians that Vijayalaya was a feudatory of the Pallava to the north but then it seems that he took it upon himself to reach out for more power in his locality. The nearby city of Tanjavur was under the control of the Mutaraya dynasty under their king Alangu. Vijayalaya captured the city and this enabled him to establish a firm power base in the area. 
Tanjavur became the new capital city for Vijayalaya Chola, and this may have happened around the year 850. Both the Pallava and the Pandya were concerned with the actions of Vijayalaya. Vijayalaya had subjugated the Mutaraya and was in a powerful position. The Pallava had gained the upper hand in their war against the Pandya and as such commissioned the Pandya to deal with the Chola problem. The Pandya, under their king Varaguna II, marched into Chola territory and subjugated the Chola. King Vijayalaya Chola was said to have been old and disabled by this time, and so the Chola lacked his spirited leadership. The Chola rise was short-lived. After the passing of Vijayalaya, leadership of the Chola would pass down to his son, Aditya. Aditya would begin his reign as a subject of the Pandya. Aditya ruled over the Chola for over 35 years, and over the course of his reign, it appears that he stood up against the authority of the Pandya and the Pallava. Towards the very end of the 9th century, there was a succession crisis within the Pallava kingdom, so Aditya took full advantage of this and gained control of the area known as Tondo Mandalam, and this led to the fall of the Pallava. Aditya also scored victories against the Pandya kings. We can call this the most significant early emergencies of the Chola as a significant imperial entity. However, I have seen many other sources state that it was Aditya's son, Parantaka, who took control of the Pandya city of Madurai. So some of the sources pointing towards this period can provide sketchy or even different informations. So it is important to tread carefully when describing these earliest imperial Chola events. A Pandya king called Maravarman Rajasimha II fled with his crown to the Anuradhapura kingdom just across the water on the island of Sri Lanka. Parantaka pursued the king across to Sri Lanka but was unable to capture his crown. The Pandya kingdom had fallen to the Chola in any case. Still, the Deccan Plateau was dominated by the Rashtrakuta, who controlled a vast amount of territory. It would not have escaped their notice that the Chola were now making waves in the far south. Parantaka's half-brother was called Kanara Devan, and he was born to a Rashtrakuta mother, who was the daughter of King Krishna II of Rashtrakuta. Krishna wished for his own grandson, Kanara Devan, to become the king of the Chola, and so he invaded the lands of the Chola, ruled by Parantaka. The two sides met in battle in the year 911 at the Battle of Valhalla, and Parantaka scored a famous victory which cost the lives of many Rashtrakuta soldiers. Parantaka went on to rule for almost 50 years, and it would be towards the end of his reign that the Rashtrakuta gained some payback. Krishna II's great-grandson, who ruled Rashtrakuta as Krishna III, engaged Parantaka's son, the prince Rajaditya Chola, in battle at the Battle of Takolam in the 940s. The Rashtrakuta won the battle, and Prince Rajaditya was killed 
all of Parantica's work had ultimately been in vain, as he would oversee the loss of his major city, Tanjavur. The Chola then disappeared into obscurity in the historical record. Raja Raja the First. It may have been that there were internal rivalries following the death of the heir to the Chola throne, and this is what caused the Chola to lose their international footing. Eventually, a great-grandson of Parantika came to be the monarch in the year 985, and his name was Raja Raja. Before he acceded to the throne, the Rashtrika kingdom had collapsed. The kingdom fragmented and evolved into its independent dynasties and this would favour the Chola who had been living under the Rashtrakuta's shadow. Now was the time for the Chola to once again attempt to exert their influence over their neighbours. Raja Raja would bring the Pandya back under their feudal overlordship and would also become the feudal overlords of the Chera who we mentioned right at the beginning as one of the ancient dynasties of Tamilakam. Then Raja Raja would turn his attention to the waters. Apparently, they would use their trading ships as military vessels by transporting military personnel on these ships. Raja Raja would revisit the Anuradhapura kingdom on the island of Sri Lanka, the protectors of the Pandya king, who fled from Chola aggression a few generations previous. This time, the Chola would conquer a significant amount of territory in the north of the island, bringing it into their imperial realm. Raja Raja is also credited with taking control of a significant number of islands, so this is believed to be after the conquest of the Chera, which allowed Raja Raja easy access to Lakshadweep and consequently the Maldives. Raja Raja would continue with the Chola tradition of building temples to celebrate his conquests, and we can enjoy the beautiful Brihadisavara temple in Tanjavur as a consequence. It is a fine example of the Chola style of Dravidian architecture that still stands gloriously over a thousand years later. It is a Hindu temple dedicated to the deity called Shiva. After the fall and fragmentation of Rashtrakuta in the late 10th century, a new branch of the Chalukya would rise to take control of vast amounts of the Deccan Plateau. The remnants of the previous Chalukya dynasty who ruled the Deccan before the Rashtrakuta were subdued to a small area on the east coast and referred to as the Eastern Chalukya, which would differentiate them from the fast-expanding Western Chalukya that had taken control of the Deccan and stood in the way of any northward ambitions of the Chola. The Eastern Chalukya had a positive relationship with the Chola during the reign of Raja Raja. Raja Raja would support the crowning of Saktivaran of the eastern Chalukya for the region called Vengi and this would infuriate the western Chalukya who opposed the move. Battles took place between the western Chalukya of the Deccan Plateau and the Chola of Tamilakan. The western Chalukya accused the Chola 
of atrocities against their women and children. Raja Raja was succeeded as the king of the Chola by his son Rajendra. In the final years of his father's life, Rajendra would take an active role in assisting his father in ruling the Chola. With Rajendra's full accession following his father's death, he would revisit the conquered areas of the Chola Empire and plunder for wealth yet again. That would be dedicated to the Hindu temple sites such as Brihadisvara. While doing so, he would complete the total conquest of the island of Sri Lanka. On campaigning in the Vengi, the Chola decided to push further northwards. Initially into Kalinga, an area on the east coast that had suffered great destruction at the hands of the Mauryan Empire Ashoka the Great over a thousand years earlier. The major city of Yayatinagara was the capital city of the Somavanshi kingdom and the Chola attacked this city probably in the early 1020s. This would allow the Chola access to the Ganges River Delta and its sacred waters. Rivers would have been traversed using elephants, but the waters could be used to sanctify the conquered lands of the Chola and could even be taken back to the important temples of the Chola. Rajendra would have more ambitious ideas, however. His intention was to build a new capital city with a great Hindu temple and a reconstructed Ganges River. The dynasty ruling over the lands of the Ganges River around this time was the Pala dynasty and the Chola briefly won control of the Delta which was considered a great victory. Rajendra would build his new city and temple back in the Chola homelands in commemoration of the Chola's great victory over the Pala and the city would be named Gangaikonda Cholapuram which somewhat translates to the Chola city of the Ganges River conquest. Unlike Tanjavur, the ancient city now lies in ruins, but the great temple still remains. Once again, a breathtakingly beautiful example of the ornate Chola style of Dravidian architecture dedicated to the Hindu deity Shiva, and it still stands today as a site that can be visited. Gangaikonda Cholapuram would become the new capital city of the Chola. Although these exploits and campaigns seem bold and grandiose, Rajendra had even greater ambitions ahead. Southeast Asia The Maritime Silk Road had been a very important source of trade and commerce for many centuries and would stretch from the western societies of the Red Sea and the Arabian Sea to the eastern societies of China. The via points on this route were the Indian subcontinent and the Southeast Asian Peninsula. From the Indian subcontinent, one would have to navigate through the straits and waterways of the islands and archipelagos south of the Southeast Asian Peninsula. The most important waterway of maritime Southeast Asia was the Strait of Malacca, which separates the southernmost peninsula of mainland Asia, the Malay Peninsula, from the large island of Sumatra. 
All of these lands were under the control of the Buddhist empire of Srivijaya. There will be a podcast episode about Srivijaya later on in the volume, but essentially the Srivijaya had been a very wealthy imperial polity that had benefited hugely from their position on the Maritime Silk Road and a political understanding with Chinese maritime traders. The Srivijaya that Rajendra Chola encountered in the 11th century was a shadow of its former self no longer as powerful as they had once been and weakened by the losses of some of its dependencies. With no real evidence of a dedicated Chola military naval fleet, the simple trading vessels at their disposal would have surely been no match for the powerful Srivijaya fleet, but it seems that the Srivijaya fleet was now just relegated down to raiding boats only, so this might be why the Chola felt that there was an opportunity to exploit the situation. Some sources suggest that the Chola fleet had advanced due to its considerable rise in imperial status under Raja Raja and now Rajendra, and the fact that it now had considerably more maritime responsibilities since its conquest of Sri Lanka, Lakshadweep and the Maldives. A temple inscription exists in Tanjavur that gives us some information about Rajendra's campaigns in maritime Southeast Asia. The inscripted name Ma Nakavaram is highly likely to be synonymous with Nicobar, and this points us towards the Andaman and Nicobar Islands, which stand as a threshold between the Bay of Bengal, which are the waters to the east of the Indian subcontinent, and the Andaman Sea, which are the waters to the west of the Southeast Asia Peninsula. It appears that the Chola had control of these islands and therefore a very good strategic base from which to conduct operations against the Srivijaya. The motivation behind these operations was to secure an unchallenged route to the Chinese trading ports, so it appears that the Chola were not really interested in imperial conquest, but if it were a means to an end, then so be it. It does appear that the Chola did record and celebrate their victories and subjugations of Southeast Asian settlements during the 11th century. Inscriptions at the Brihadisvara Temple boast of the Chola capture of the Srivijaya Emperor, Sangrama Vijaytungavarman, and we also know that Rajendra married Sangrama's daughter, Onankyu. But I hasten to add that the Chola kings would have many wives at one time. It certainly appears that Rajendra specifically targeted Kadaram for plunder, which was often the primary aim of the Chola and many of the subcontinental societies in their battles with each other. Kadaram, like Srivijaya and Sri Lanka, were Buddhist strongholds. Plunder of Kadaram may well have ultimately contributed to the wealth of Hindu temples of the Chola back home. Kadaram was a Srivijaya stronghold on the Malay Peninsula. The reign of Rajendra marks the high point of Chola imperial expansion. After Rajendra. Rajendra's co-regent was his son Rajadiraja, 
and he succeeded his father in 1044, who died in his 70s. As his father's co-regent, Raja Raja learned how to become a highly capable military general. He would work hard to consolidate the Chola gains in Sri Lanka and on the east coast in Vengi and Kalinga. He would also campaign against the Chola's traditional enemies of West Chalukya, and he generally was successful. It was during the 1050s that a great battle between the Chola and the West Chalukya took place at a place called Kopam, in the heart of West Chalukya territory. Although the Chola scored a victory, they lost their king, Rajadiraja, during the battle, which had to be completed by his younger brother and successor to the throne who ruled Chola as Rajendra II. Another brother, Vira Rajendra, also ruled the Chola after Rajendra II, and although the reigns were relatively short compared to their father, Rajendra I and their grandfather, Rajaraja, the three brothers were still able to maintain a strong Chola empire in the face of various attacks and rebellions. Vira Rajendra is particularly noted for his contributions towards education and hospitals. The success of the Chola stability could be down to the structure of their empire, giving leaders the ability to govern at a much more localised level, leaving the king to campaign and plunder for the benefit of the temples and the national wealth. The provinces of the Chola empire were called mandalams and were managed by their own governors. In 1070 it appears that the Chola lost control of Sri Lanka but were still able to maintain control of Vengi and were still able to maintain influence over the trade route through maritime Southeast Asia. King Kulatunga Chola reigned for over 50 years over the course of the turn of the 12th century and the long successes of his reign have been attributed to his well-organised administration of the empire and avoidance of unnecessary expenditure and warfare. Diplomatic relationships were strong with China, but also with other land-based empires on the Maritime Silk Road, such as the Khmer Empire of the modern lands of Cambodia and the Pagan Empire of the modern lands of Myanmar. It is suggested that the sensible rule of Kulontonga had laid the foundation for Chola survival after his death at the advanced age of 97 in the year 1122. It is fair to say that peace in the Indian subcontinent was extremely rare, as much on a domestic level as it was on an international level. Despite Kulotonga's comparatively able leadership at the Chola during his lifetime, territories were constantly being disputed, such as Vengi and the lands of the Chera. Kulotunga avoided expensive wars against the Western Chalukya, which may have been aided by the Western Chalukya having its own domestic affairs to deal with. A new cultural wave was also encroaching on the Indian subcontinent in the area of the Punjab in the Indus Valley in the form of the Ghaznavid Empire, which was an Islamic empire. 
Even the Ghasnavids suffered from their own brutal succession crises. So intrigues and warfare seemed to just be the nature of kingdoms and empires of the 11th and 12th centuries in the subcontinent. The Muslim societies that encountered the Hindu societies during this period would record their observance of Hindu rituals, which they found highly unusual. The Chola emperors of the later 12th century were consumed with battling on their local fronts against the many dynasties who were battling with each other in the south of the Indian subcontinent. Disputes in the traditional territory of the Pandya led to a movement of the Pandya which enabled them to gain a foothold in the political situation, which enabled them to become a significant player in the region again. And this would have consequences for the future of the region and indeed the Chola themselves. However, the Chola did maintain a healthy position during the 12th century and we continue to see the traditional temple building, including the third of the great living Chola temples built by King Raja Raja II and called the Ayurvatesvara Temple which was built between the two other great temples that we have already mentioned in this episode, the Brihadisvara temple built at Tanjavur and the one built at Gangaikonda Cholapuram, which is often called the Brihadisvara temple as well. Decline. The Western Chalukya Empire collapsed towards the end of the 12th century, eliminating a long-time traditional rival of the Chola. But where one dynasty collapsed, another would emerge. Although Western Chalukya fragmented, one of the more significant dynasties to rise to power were the Hoysala, who acquired the lands similar in size and location to the modern Indian state of Karnataka. Although the Chola initially had somewhat of an amicable relationship with the Hoysala, the Hoysala were quite shrewd at aligning themselves politically with factions within the Chola Empire that would create enough disunity to be able to curb the general power of the Chola as a nation. At one point, the Hoysala would support the Pandya in their rivalries with the Chola, but when the Pandya grew wise to the Hoysala strategy, the Pandya would actually briefly align with the Chola to suppress Hoysala power. So the three nations were checking each other at each opportunity. By the end of the reign of King Raja Raja III in the middle of the 13th century, the lands that the Chola had influence over had significantly reduced in size. The Pandya had taken all of their territories in the south and the Huizala had taken all of their territories to the northwest of their heartlands. It appears that Raja Raja III was assassinated by his successor who would take over the rule of the Chola as Rajendra III. When Rajendra III took the throne, he may have realised that his main threat were the ever more powerful Pandya to the south, and it appears that he scored victories against them early on. With the Hoysala also recognising the growing power of the Pandya, they would choose to ally themselves with Rajendra III to aid in preventing Pandya expansion. The Pandya, under their king Jatavaraman Sundara, were able to resist these aggressions and expel the Hoysala from the region, and they killed the Hoysala king, which proved to be disastrous for the Chola, 
who were now left to defend their territory alone against the Pandya. The Pandya were defeating many neighbouring dynasties in their ascent to power and the Chola were on their list. It appears that the Pandya defeated the Chola in a decisive battle. Rajendra III was forced to declare the Chola as a suzerain state of the Pandya. It is suggested that Rajendra III lived until the year 1279. After the death of Rajendra III, there are no further inscriptions about the Chola. This suggests that there was no Chola king after Rajendra III. The lands of the Chola now fell under Pandya rule. So effectively, we have come full circle from the humble days of the rise of the Imperial Chola three centuries earlier, where they conquered the Pandya, and the Pandya were forced to live under Chola rule. Now, the Pandya had risen up and turned the tables on the Chola, and it was now the Chola living under Pandya rule. This was the end of the Chola Empire. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast on the Cholas. And um, next week we'll be doing some more uh, medieval India when we look at the Delhi Sultanate. But um, if you generally enjoy the podcast and you would like to support the podcast, then please visit our website, click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution. When you do that, you will become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and qualify for various gifts and rewards. Come along to Patreon and have a look at what we can do for you. This week, we welcome some new members into the History of the World podcast Illuminati, Jeff Stein, Mike Sanger and Brad Massey. Welcome in uh, one and all. I wonder if, uh, yes, one. I think one or two of you have, um, have been um, patrons before, haven't you? So like, like maybe, maybe you wanted another mention perhaps, but you, we've got one. So it certainly worked anyway. Thank you very much indeed uh, for all of you who, do contribute uh, to the success of the podcast. Uh, now, if you want to access bonus material and you want to listen to the podcast ad-free, then you can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. Just uh, click on the link in the uh, podcast description in order to do that. But this week, we've got a treat for everyone. Normally, the uh, debrief episodes are exclusive for subscribers and patrons only. But this week, uh, just uh, we're going to we're going to distribute the the debrief episode to everybody just for a change this week. So everyone will get access to the debrief episode, so you can all get a taste of what the debrief episode is. So what we generally do is we normally discuss the podcast episode that we've just presented. Um, talk about some of the source material and uh, maybe one or two things that are a little bit unrelated. So it's normally just 10, 15 minutes of extra material. So uh, be sure to listen to that as well. Now, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, please drop me a line at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com and I normally read them out in the next section. Listener messages and reviews. 
Now, last week, we did a special episode on historiography, a real challenge of an episode that was. Uh, But um, the patron who commissioned that episode was Diane Timmerman, and she wrote in this week and said, Hi, Chris, thank you so much for the episode on, on historiography. You did a brilliant job by fitting a comprehensive overview in such a short time. And as an added bonus, historiography of China and what drives you personally. I think it is important to realise that telling history without bias is difficult. Being aware that histories are often written with a purpose is a big step in getting a completer view of the past. So thanks again. Kind regards, Diane. P.S. This reaction is a little late. We were in the midst of going on holiday, so I'll write to you from a place halfway between Würzburg and Dachau. Very historical places, as you probably know. Well, thank you, Diane, and um, enjoy that little holiday. What a, uh, a good, what a good little uh, journey that is. I often thought about driving through Germany myself. So, um. Then also we got David Peace who wrote in another man um, who um, who commissioned a special episode on the subject of his choice. Um, he uh, commissioned an episode on New Netherlands, which was uh, the colony created by the uh, by the Dutch in uh, in the seventeenth century. But he listened to to uh, the latest episode but dear Chris thank you for your superb thought provoking episode on historiography and thanks to Miss Timmerman for putting you up to the challenge I'm sure you are familiar with Lord Acton's quote power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely well he also said history is not a burden on the memory but an illumination of the soul as your production so brilliantly reveals well done Well, thank you both very much for writing in and uh, I hope likewise everyone enjoyed last week's episode and enjoyed this week's episode. As I said earlier, next week we're going to be talking about the Delhi Sultanate when Islam arrived in the Indian subcontinent and what happened when this powerful sultanate attempted to take over the entire subcontinent so we're going to find out about that next week now don't forget there's a bonus episode as well bolted onto the back of this so look for that as well and for all you patrons there will be um if you go to the patreon website you'll be able to access the debrief for the historiography episode as well so that will be there too anyway thanks for listening And uh, enjoy your week and be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.